Jesus began his corrections of pharisaical misinterpretations of the law by returning the sixth and seventh commandments to their original intent. Accordingly, Jesus states that the sixth commandment prohibiting murder and the seventh commandment prohibiting adultery includes prohibitions against hate and lust. Jesus ends his corrections by affirming the royal law, which according to Leviticus 19.18 states, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Interestingly, Jesus ends where he began, as both adultery and murder are violations of the royal law to love one's neighbor. Now, the command to love one's neighbor in Leviticus 19.18 is the summation of Leviticus 19.9-18, which commands us to minister to the hurting and helpless. Who exactly are the hurting and helpless? According to Leviticus 19, they are the needy, i.e. orphans and widows, the stranger, i.e. immigrants, the poor, as well as the deaf and the blind, i.e. the disabled. Now, in light of that definition, how many of us are guilty of failing to minister to the hurting and helpless? How often do we simply not care about them? James 2.18 states, If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbors yourself, you are doing well. The verb fulfilling, teleo, means putting something into practice to accomplish a goal. As Jesus outlined in Matthew 5, 43-48, our goal as kingdom citizens is, to, is loving others the same way God the Father loves all, that is, indiscriminately and equally. Notably, God expects us to love the hurting and the helpless as He does. Too often we overlook them because we view them as a burden. Worse, when some believers do minister to the hurting and helpless, they do it for the applause or praise of people. Hence, before moving on from his corrections of pharisaical misinterpretations of God's law, Jesus focuses upon the hurting, the helpless, and the kingdom citizen in Matthew 6, 1-4. The hurting, the helpless, and the kingdom citizen, Matthew 6, 1-4. Now Jesus begins his discourse on the hurting, the helpless, and the kingdom citizen by setting forth the presiding principle for righteous deeds in Matthew 6-1. Let's read it, shall we? Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. He begins with a warning. Beware. That verb beware, prosecco, means be on guard, be on alert to something. And that something that you need to be alert about is practicing your righteousness before men. Now what is righteousness? Righteousness, diakosune, is obedience to God and His law. There are three aspects to righteousness. Legal, moral, and social. Legal righteousness refers to the legal standing that declares you justified based on faith. Moral righteousness is the imputed righteousness of Christ possessed by us so that our conduct conforms to God's moral standard, His law. Social righteousness is conformity to God's righteousness and justice in the world. When Jesus commanded us in Matthew 5-6 to hunger and thirst for righteousness, He was referring to f first to moral righteousness and second to social righteousness. From a Godward perspective, we must intensely desire moral righteousness. That is, in the words of Jesus, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, Matthew 6.33. Second, from a manward perspective, 
we must intensely desire social righteousness, that is, performing righteous deeds towards others. Now, in Jewish culture, social righteousness is known as tzedakah and involves providing aid to the hurting and helpless. Remember, they lived in a society with no government-sponsored financial programs, such as social security or welfare. Hence, it was incumbent upon people to care for other people. The religious leaders taught that performing zedekah, or righteous deeds, were necessary in order to escape divine judgment. Though the Pharisees appeared righteous, their zedekah, or righteous deeds, were in fact disingenuous and motivated by self-indulgence, for which Jesus condemned them. In Matthew 23:25, he said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. Believers, we must examine the motive behind our righteous deeds. To this issue, Jesus warned us that unless our righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, we will not enter the kingdom of heaven, Matthew 5.20. A righteous deed that exceeds the Pharisees' righteous deeds is one that is done solely for God's glory. Now, how many of you can honestly state that your righteous deeds are genuinely done for God's glory? How many of you would stand before a holy God and claim that there is not some part of your inner person that enjoys the attention received by your righteous deed? To ask it another way, how many of you get bent out of shape when you do not receive a thank you or some recognition for your righteous deed. If that describes you, believer, if you become bent out of shape because you didn't get recognized, then you did your righteous deed for people's praise and not for God's glory. Check yourself. Now, when Jesus refers to practicing your righteousness, he explicitly refers to social righteousness or the charitable deeds done for the benefit of those in need. Indeed, believers, we are commanded to care for the needy. However, Jesus warns us that we must be careful in our righteous deeds. Believers, we are not to engage in social righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Now, immediately there appears to be a conflict between this command and Jesus' earlier command in Matthew 5.16, Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. How can Jesus command doing good works before men and at the same time prohibit doing them before men? The answer lies in discovering the purpose for each command. In Matthew 5.20, Jesus issued the command to do good before men in response to the sin of cowardice. The latter command, here in Matthew 6.1, is given in response to the sin of vanity. On the one hand, some believers, perhaps some of you, refuse to obey God by engaging in social righteousness. On the other hand, some believers, perhaps you, are engaging in social righteousness for the sole purpose of stroking your ego. Without a doubt, there is a tension between these two commands, though there is no contradiction. We must guard our hearts against the sins of cowardice and vanity. The tension between the commands can be resolved in the following way. 
Friend, if you're tempted to hide your obedience to God, show it before men. However, when you're tempted to show off your obedience to God before men, hide it. I'll state that again. If you're tempted to hide your obedience to God, show it before men. But if you're tempted to show off your obedience to God before men, then hide it. Furthermore, these commands are not in contention because the goal is the same, God's glory. See, my friend, as we display obedience to God by engaging in social righteousness, He is glorified. And at the same time, when we engage in social righteousness quietly, God gets the glory. In particular, Jesus gives three examples of social righteousness that should be engaged in quietly. Giving to the poor, Matthew 6, 2-4. Praying, Matthew 6, 5-15. And fasting, Matthew 6, 16-18. Now, as an interesting aside, Jesus expects all kingdom citizens to engage in such deeds. Notice how Jesus addressed each issue in Matthew 6, 2, 5, and 16. Matthew 6, 2, when you give to the poor. Matthew 6, 5, when you pray. Matthew 6, 16, when you fast. Jesus did not say, if you give to the poor, if you pray, or if you fast. The term when, hotan, takes for granted that believers are engaging in these actions. In other words, Jesus expects us to give to the poor, to pray, and to fast. And that applies to all of us as kingdom citizens. Now, in response to believers doing a righteous deed to be seen to people, Jesus says, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. The term reward, misthos, refers to credit or a benefit. Jesus previously used this term in Matthew 5.46, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? His point there was there is no benefit in only loving those by whom one is loved. Kingdom citizens are to love all, their neighbors, their enemies, as well as those who are hurting and helpless. Hence, when Jesus uses the same term here in Matthew 6.1, his point is that when we engage in obedience to God, particularly in the realm of social righteousness, and engage it to stroke our egos, we forfeit any potential heavenly rewards. Having set forth the presiding principle for righteous deeds, Jesus now explains the private practice of righteous deeds in Matthew 6, 2-4. The private practice of righteous deeds. Verse 2. So when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, so that they may be honored by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But when you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving will be in secret, and your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. Now specifically, Jesus applies the practice of righteous deeds to caring for the hurting and helpless. Jesus says, when you give to the poor. Again, note the term when, hotan. The term takes for granted that we will engage in giving to the poor. In other words, giving to the poor is not optional for kingdom citizens. In biblical Judaism, God's people were expected to care for the needs of the hurting and helpless. Remember, they were responsible to practice social righteousness or tzedakah. 
the deuterocanonical Jewish text Tobit, written around the 2nd century B.C., states in chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, To all those who practice righteousness, give alms from your possessions, and do not let your eye begrudge the gift when you make it. Do not turn your face away from anyone who is poor, and the face of God will not be turned away from you. From this text, we can see that the normative Jewish view of practicing social righteousness involved giving to the poor. No doubt Jesus' statement about practicing your righteousness and give to the poor is drawn from Tobit 4, 6, and 7. The phrase give to the poor is unique in Greek. First, the verb poieo means to do or perform an action. Next, the phrase contains the noun elemosune, referring to the act of contributing to the poor out of compassion or kindness. Hence, a wooden translation would be, as you are doing your contributing to the poor out of compassion. It's also worth stating that the verb is in the subjunctive mood, implying that the act of giving is intentional. In other words, giving to the poor is not optional for us, believer. Furthermore, it is to be intentional. Now, who are the poor to whom Jesus alludes? Again, we must turn to God's law for the answer. Leviticus 19.15 states, You shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor, nor defer to the great, but you are to judge your neighbor fairly. The Hebrew term for poor, thou, denotes someone lacking material wealth or social standing. In Proverbs 10.15, the poor lack material wealth. The rich man's wealth is his fortress. The ruin of the poor is their poverty. In Amos 2.7, poor lack in social standing. These who pant after the very dust of the earth on the head of the helpless. Hence, the poor are financially hurting and socially helpless. Now, whom in society would be considered financially hurting and socially helpless? Again, one needs only to turn to God's law for the answer. The reference to the poor in Leviticus 19.15 is part of a larger context of loving one's neighbor. An examination of the entire context of Leviticus 19 identifies those whom God designated as the poor. Leviticus 19.10 commands that provisions be made for the needy and the stranger. The needy, Hana, refers to anyone poor or afflicted. Primarily the poor and afflicted are orphans and widows. Lacking fathers or husbands, they were destitute and often begged for daily provisions. The stranger, the gare, refers to immigrants. Immigrants are those who leave their country seeking a better life. Often they arrive with nothing but the clothes on their back. Leviticus 19.14 commands that no one should curse a deaf man nor place a stumbling block before the blind. The deaf and the blind refers to the disabled. Being disabled, they were unable to work and as such ended up begging to meet their daily needs. The poor or the helpless and hurting are orphans, widows, immigrants, and others physically, mentally, socially, and economically oppressed. That is, individuals who have no means of income. Now, the poor are not those who refuse to work. As Paul told the Thessalonians, if anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. 2 Thessalonians 3.10 Friends, God has a special love for the poor. Deuteronomy 10.18 reveals that God executes justice for the orphan and the widow and shows his love for the alien by giving him food and clothing. As kingdom citizens, can we do any less than the king himself? 
When the rich young ruler asked Jesus what he was missing to inherit eternal life, Jesus said in Matthew 19.21, If you wish to be complete, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Come, follow me. Jesus revealed that that man was greedy and not fit for God's kingdom until he repented of said greed. Friends, an unwillingness to give to the poor displays a disdain for God's kingdom. Again, Jesus admonished us in Matthew 5, 42, Give to him who asks of you, and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. On another occasion, Jesus was invited to the home of one of the Pharisaical leaders for a Sabbath dinner. During the meal, he healed a disabled man, much to the chagrin of the host. Again, in the mind of the Pharisee, it was a sin to do a work on the Sabbath, and as such, he viewed the healing of a disabled man as a work. Jesus' point is that doing a righteous deed to the hurting and helpless does not qualify as a work. After a tense discussion, Jesus rebuked the host for not caring for the hurting and helpless. Luke 14, 12-14 records that rebuke. Quote, And he also went on to say to the one who had invited him, When you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, otherwise they may also invite you in return, and that will be a repayment. But when you give a reception, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed, since they do not have the means to repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous." The underlying ordinance for Jesus' admonishment is found in Deuteronomy 15, 7-11. If there is a poor man with you, one of your brothers, in any of your towns in your land which the Lord your God has given you, you shall not harden your heart nor close your hand from your poor brother. But you shall freely open your hand to him and shall generously lend him sufficient for his need in whatever he lacks. You shall generously give to him, and your heart shall not be grieved when you give to him. Because for this thing, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all your undertakings. For the poor will never cease to be in the land. Indeed, Jesus reiterated that final statement in Matthew 26:11, For you always have the poor with you. Jesus' rebuke of the Pharisaical leader was not an absolute prohibition against inviting friends and family over for a meal. Please don't take it that way. Instead, Jesus was using hyperbole. His point was that inviting friends and family to a meal is not a righteous deed. A righteous deed is done for someone who cannot pay back what was done. Furthermore, if he invited the helpless and hurting who cannot repay the invite with an invite, he would then be conforming to God's law and in turn laying up treasures in heaven. The book of Acts underscores how the apostolic church cared for the hurting and helpless. Acts 2.45 they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Acts 4.34-35 There was not a needy person among them, for all who were owners of lands or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each as any had need. You see, individuals sold their properties and possessions and brought them to the church leaders, who in turn distributed to those in need. Their giving was great, so great that there was no needy person in the early church. Now that kind of stewardship seems radical to us in the modern church. But it is exactly this kind of radical stewardship that God demands. 
How different would our churches look if we as believers cared for our hurting and helpless in this manner? Now, having defined the poor and the responsibility to give to the poor, consider what Jesus says about righteous deeds. So as not to forfeit our heavenly reward, Jesus provides two admonishments for us in our practice of righteous deeds. First, we should do our righteous deeds in private. And second, we need to do our righteous deeds in secret. Jesus first admonishes us that righteous deeds should be done in private. Notice what Jesus says, Do not sound a trumpet. In other words, he says that we should not toot our own horn. We must not bring attention to our righteous deeds that we are doing. We are to help the hurting and the helpless in such a way so as not to deliberately accrue praise from people. According to Jesus, those who toot their own horns act just as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets so that they may be honored by men. In first century Greco-Roman culture, a hypocrite, hypocrites, acted in the theater. As actors, they took on different identities to play a part. Now, there's nothing wrong with acting or playing a part in the theater because the audience knows the actor is playing a part. There's no deception on the part of the actor. However, when Jesus commonly referred to the Pharisees as hypocrites or actors, it was not in a positive fashion. He accused them of being religious frauds performing for the applause of people. Specifically, Jesus refers to how the Pharisees gave gifts in the synagogue and to the poor. For example, on the way to deliver their gifts to the poor, they would have trumpeters march in front of them, blowing their horns to attract a crowd. Bringing attention to one's righteous deed for the praise of others is one of the persistent sins of Pharisaicalism. John 12, 43. For they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. Now friends, listen. Seeking the praise of others is so dangerous that Jesus questioned the Pharisees regarding the reality of their faith. In John 5.44, Jesus says to them, How can you believe when you receive glory or praise from one another and you do not seek the glory or the praise that is from the one and only God? In other words, anyone meeting the needs of the hurting and helpless for the praise of people instead of God's glory has a spiritual problem. Indeed, your desire for others' praise may imply that you're not genuinely saved. Now that's serious. And that's why we've got to check our motivation. To those who toot their own horn, Jesus says, they have the reward in full. Again, reward, misthos, refers to a credit or a benefit. The verb have, apeko, means to receive in full. It's a business term used in transactions to convey that a receipt has been uh, given for payment received in full. Jesus' point is that those who seek people's praise will receive it. However, that praise is all the reward or credit you're going to get. There's no further reward, there's no further benefit owed to your righteous deed. If you, my friend, perform righteous deeds for the express purpose of getting praise from people, you have forfeited any possible heavenly reward due. Again, believers, let's not make a public display of our righteous deeds. 
Jesus next admonishes us that our righteous deeds should be done in secret. So they must be done in private. They must be done in secret. He says, when you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving will be secret. The term secret, kruptos, means concealed from all persons except those involved. No doubt, Jesus again drew from the writings of the Jewish religious leaders. In Mishnah Shekelem 5.6, it states, there were two chambers in the temple, one the chamber of secret gifts and the other the chamber of the vessels. The chamber of secret gifts, sin-fearing persons, used to put their gifts there in secret, and the poor who were descended of the virtuous were secretly supported from them. That the temple had a chamber for secret gifts and encouraged all giving to be done in secret further displays the fraudulent and despicable behavior of the Pharisees. So whereas in the first admonition Jesus admonished us not to tell others, he now states that we're not even to tell ourselves. Again, Jesus invokes hyperbole to make a point. The point of not telling oneself is not to mull it over and over in one's mind. See, even though we may keep our righteous deeds to ourselves, we can still think about what we have done and develop a self-congratulatory attitude. In turn, what was once an act of mercy becomes an act of vanity. Jesus confirms that the Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Here the reward is different. Instead of misthos, Jesus uses the verb abadidomai, meaning to repay or restore. While the verb reward, abadidomai, is in the future tense, there is nothing to imply that this reward is strictly the future reward given to believers in heaven. Consider the use of the future tense in the characteristics of the kingdom citizens in Matthew 5, 3-12. Jesus attached various blessings to the eight characteristics. The first and eighth blessings are presented in the present, while blessings two through seven are presented in the future. The intent is that we as believers experience some blessings in the present, while complete enjoyment of the blessings will come in the future. It's also important to note that the future tense does not merely denote when they will occur, but the certainty that they will occur. Hence, the use of the future tense of reward, abadidomai, in Matthew 6, 4, guarantees that those who keep their giving secret will be repaid. This repayment can be in the present or the future. Now before moving further, it must be emphasized that Jesus is not prohibiting financial accounting. You may keep records to know what you have given and to whom you have given for financial accountability. That said, while it's necessary to keep records, it would be immoral to pat yourself on the back for your generosity. Jesus' admonishment is a warning to us to guard our motivations or our inward desires. To that end, is it unethical to claim a tax deduction on one's charitable giving? Is it unethical for believers to claim a tax deduction on their offerings to their local church or ministry? Does claiming these deductions violate Jesus' admonishment to keep one's giving private and secret? The answer to each of these questions is yes and no. Yes, it is unethical to write off your charitable giving or offering if, if the sole purpose of giving was to gain a tax deduction. However, it is not unethical to write off your charitable giving or offering if, if the genuine motivation was to relieve the needs of the hurting or helpless or support the Lord's ministry.
In such cases, the tax deduction can be viewed as a reward, abedidomy, or repayment from the father. Again, let me restate what I said. It is unethical to write off your charitable giving or offering if the sole purpose of giving was to gain a tax deduction. However, it is not unethical to write off your charitable giving or offering if the genuine motivation was to relieve the needs of the hurting or helpless or support the Lord's ministry. Again, you have to check your motivation. As well, Jesus' admonitions cut against a common practice found in churches and Christian ministries of publishing a list of supporters. This practice comes in all forms, whether it's a printed list in a booklet or names on bricks or plaques. The purpose of printing these names is to incentivize individuals to give. Such an incentive speaks to a person's ego. After all, who does not want to see their name in print? Such tactics purport to honor God, when in reality they are drawing attention to people, not Him. It is no secret that churches and ministries do not run on prayer alone. They need money. However, how they go about fundraising is crucial. Churches and ministries must not employ worldly tactics that feed people's egos in order to build financial stability. A further thought about giving in private and secret. Living in a social media saturated culture has produced an attitude of oversharing. People, believers included, overshare the various details of their lives. They are so quick to share, sometimes with good intention, that they fail to recognize that they have fallen into the sin of boasting. For example, in time of crisis, it's beautiful that believers want to respond with righteous deeds to the needs of those who are hurting. However, their good intention becomes evil when they succumb to the overarching need to post their good intention on social media. In doing so, they have failed to perform their righteous work in private and in secret. They have earned the praise of people and forfeited their heavenly reward. Now, some of you may disagree and retort that such posts are made to praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, folks, should put all the attention on the Lord, who He is and what He has done. Talking about what you're feeling or doing is not talking about what God has done. Listen, you can praise God that He provided help to the helpless, but be sure to leave yourself out of it. Some believers are also boasting of the righteous deeds and excusing it by using Christianese jargon to make it sound spiritual. Listen, invoking Christianese jargon doesn't make your boasting any more spiritual or less arrogant. Friends, we need to beware of hypocrisy because God does not treat it lightly. In the early church, Ananias and Sapphira are two examples of hypocrisy. They sold property and claimed to give all the proceeds to minister to the hurting and helpless in the church. However, they were hypocrites. They acted as though they gave all, when in fact, they kept a portion for themselves. What appeared to be social righteousness was in fact theatrical righteousness. They gave to the needy to look good before the church. God nonetheless saw their hypocrisy and struck them dead. Friends, be not deceived. God is not mocked. Whatsoever man sows, that will he also reap. Instead, believers, we must follow the presiding principle for caring for the helpless and the hurting. 
That principle is do not practice righteous deeds to be praised by people. See, if you do good for people's praise, you're going to be rewarded with their praise, but you're going to forfeit all divine reward. Instead, believers, I challenge you to minister to the hurting and the helpless privately and secretly for God's glory. And God will reward all whose righteous deeds are done for His glory. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you and praise you for our time of study in your word. I pray that as we have listened to this word, as we've meditated on this word, that Father, perhaps we would examine our motives, why we do the things that we do, Father, the good things, what appears to be good. So often, Father, if we actually took the time to evaluate, we would confess before you that our righteous deeds are not so righteous because we love the praise of people. We love the pat on the bat. We love the letter of thanks. And so, Father, help us to forsake such motivations that are selfish, that are self-indulgent. Father, we confess them before you. Lord, help us to forsake them. Father, help us to not be the Ananias and Sapphira, but rather to be like you, to be like your Father. To love others indiscriminately, to love others equally, and Father, to strive to meet the needs, to do our righteous deeds to the poor, to the needy, to the hurting, to the helpless. And Father, may we do it secretly, may we do it privately, may we do it for your glory. Help us to step out of it. Help us to put you in front of it. We pray to this end. In your Son's precious and holy name, amen.